Hi everyone, I'm John, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I'd like to thank Mark and Betty for opening the meeting. And um, it's really nice to be here. Wow, this is quite a crowd. Uh, this is something different for me, obviously. Um, I'd like to thank Jimmy for inviting me uh, and Mary Beth uh, as well, because it, it truly is, truly is a privilege to be here uh, with all of you this weekend. So someone asked me last year, what is the golden road of devotion? And well, for me, it's a pathway to a new freedom and a new happiness, and it winds its way through AA history. It's a spiritual journey through recovery. Really, a spiritual journey home, and that's what it's been for me. Perhaps it's a little bit like the story of the prodigal. You know, the son who must go out and squander his inheritance and then realize it was just all some great illusion anyway. Makes me think of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, right? You know, it was just a dream the whole time. And like Dorothy, we just want to go home. We just want to go home. And what did they tell Dorothy? Just follow the yellow brick road. So that's us. We just want to go home. And the golden road of devotion is a pathway from selfishness to a life that is selfless and dedicated to a set of principles, or perhaps, as AA says, a, a primary purpose. And for me, the history of Alcoholics Anonymous is the accumulated sum of all the spiritual energy that's gone into this thing right, since man first crushed grapes. And I love that in, in the 12 and 12, you know, where Bill talks about that. So if we're going to talk about the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe we'll talk about the history of, of alcohol for a couple of minutes, okay? And since man first crushed grapes. And I remember when I first started to write, some, do some writing on the history of AA in New Jersey, I kept trying to go back. You know, where did it all begin? Where did it all begin? And we kept going back and kept going back, and there was still some other event. And we went back all the way and we found what we think was the first recorded instance of if not alcoholic drinking, certainly abnormal drinking. And we found it in the ninth chapter of a book called Genesis. And in that book you find the story of this guy Noah. And the way the story goes, it had been many generations since the creation and the world had gone to hell in a handbasket. Right? It was a dog-eat-dog world, and everybody was out for themselves. And God looked down and said, this is not what I intended. So he decided, okay, I'm going to start anew. So God selected Noah, because he was this righteous man in God's eyes, and his family to be the seeds of a new earth. So he tells Noah to get ready, and he gives Noah the instructions. You're going to build the ark, and you're going to go out the go get the animals two by two. And, and, and Noah does this, and he loads the ark up. God turns the waterworks on, and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, and everything is finished. So it finally stops raining, and the ark settles wherever it does, and, and Noah and the family get out. And Noah being um, a first things first kind of guy, wants to make an offering. And you know, God had said that this was the last time I was going to do this, and he gave us the rainbow as, as a symbol of his covenant that it wouldn't be ever done again. 
So Noah sets out to make an offering, and God is pleased. And God says, be fruitful and multiply. And Noah sets out to plant a vineyard. And he harvests the first crop of grapes. Word has it, it was a very fine Merlot. (laughs) But Noah sets out to start drinking, and he gets drunk. And he passes out naked on the floor of his tent. What is it with alcoholics and disrobing? I don't understand. (laughs) So Noah's son, Ham, comes in and sees him lying there naked. And by the way, how many people identify with Noah, okay? A couple drinks for alcohol, naked. So Ham comes in and he he mocks Noah. He goes out laughing. Ha ha, Noah's drunk on the floor of his tent. And then the other two brothers come in and... The story goes, they, they come in backwards to perver- uh, preserve Noah's dignity, and they, they cover him up. So Noah comes out of his blackout and somehow figures out that Ham had mocked him. And this part I don't get. So he lays a curse on Ham's son, Canaan. So now, not only do we have the first instance, or the recorded instance of alcoholic drinking, we got the first resentment, too. <laughs> Ham was so traumatized by this whole thing, he went out and started a group called Adult Children of Alcoholics. <laughs> since, since man first crushed grapes. And for the longest time, it was really just beer and wine. You know, that's, that's what they started with. And it was in the 8th century that a Muslim alchemist, by accident, discovered the first still. And he was, he was heating wine, and he noticed that when the vapors from the wine condensed, it condensed into a flammable liquid. And he said, oh, this is of little use, but it'll be of great importance to, to science. He obviously didn't know what alcoholics were going to do with this stuff. Little importance, it was a whole life. Moving ahead in the 17th century, you probably never heard this story before. I got the privilege to tell it up in Boston uh, back in the summertime. Most people don't realize the Mayflower landed up in Massachusetts because they ran out of beer. I'm not kidding. They had their priorities right. They, they ended up sailing from England, and, and the, one of the boats sprung a leak, so they were trying to fix it, and then they finally consolidated on the one boat, the Mayflower. By then, they were already several weeks late. So now they're trying to cross the Atlantic, and it's the wintertime or the late fall, and the winds are against them, and um, you know they're, they're not making progress. And they were starting to run low on beer. They were supposed to have settled below the 41st parallel, which would be below New York, actually Virginia, the area around Virginia. But they were running out of beer, so they got up to the area off Massachusetts and said, right turn, we're going to go settle in. The late 1700s began the worst period of drinking in American history. Problem drinking spanned all ages from children to seniors. And one of the reasons for the enormous growth in alcohol 
consumption was that it was a common practice at the time for employers to provide their employees with alcohol as part of their wages. Drinking preferences also shifted from beer and wine to distilled liquor. Distilled liquor was commonly used as a form of currency. Okay? By the early 1800s, the newly formed Republic of the United States was truly on a destructive binge, and the effects were devastating. Prominent historical figures such as George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, John Adams, urgently called for a change in the drinking habits. And they appealed to the, company, uh, the country for temperance, which at that time meant moderation. In the 1820s, people in the United States were drinking on average 27 liters of pure alcohol per person per year, truly on a destructive binge. In April 1840, a group of six drinking club friends, and I won't mention their names, got together at Chassel's Tavern in Baltimore, Maryland, and formed the Washington Temperance Society in, in honor of George Washington. They later became known as the Washingtonians. And they required a pledge of total abstinence and attendance at weekly meetings, where the members would tell their stories of drunkenness and recovery. As a body, they recognized no religion or creed and were politically neutral. Each member was supposed to help alcoholics who were still drinking. And they sought out new prospects. And the meetings were held at Chassel's Tavern, okay, until the wife, the owner's wife, objected to the increasing loss of business and threw them out. <laughs> By the mid-80s, mid-1840s, the Washingtonian movement had peaked, okay? At one point, it may have had about 150,000 members, but they had no requirement for membership other than would you sign a pledge. They had no primary purpose. It wasn't alcoholics only. Anybody could join. So it quickly peaked out. We learned a lot from the Washingtonians, though. We learned what worked. We learned what didn't work. We learned what was the downfall of the Washingtonians, which was their involvement of all the issues of the day. Today, in, in AA tradition, we have no opinion on outside issues, so that we can never run into that problem. So this takes us now to the mid to the late 1800s. Drinking was out of control and a huge problem, so much so that prohibition was on the horizon. You know, we forget, 1919, they outlawed the sale of alcohol in the United States. And that wasn't because, you know, they just wanted to do it. Alcohol was such a big problem. But something else was beginning to take shape as well. While America was on the road to perdition, the face of religion was beginning to change as well. A spiritual movement was beginning that would later into evolve into what Ebby told Bill Wilson um, was a religion of common sense. And so much of what would take place in the formation of AA hinged upon those who would come to believe and the men who came to believe. So let's see what Bill had to say about it. to Dr. Shoemaker of the Oxford Groups, to William James, and to my own physician, Dr. Silkworth, we of AA owe this tremendous benefaction. As you all now clearly see, this astonishing chain of events was directly founded upon your own humility and deep perception. 
So as I look back on the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, it never fails to amaze and humble me to see how the actors were arranged in the drama that was to unfold into AA. There are no coincidences. Certain key players at the right moment and place and time had to come to believe in the power greater than human power and then publicly lay the groundwork so that others could capture this belief in power. It is because of the humility and deep perception of these men that we have our program of recovery. Although working individually decades apart, their efforts came together under the hand of providence to provide a solution to the age-old problem of alcoholism. Without their formulas for recovery, as expressed in their faith and their works, the simple pathway to a cure, the golden road of devotion, might have remained hidden to the alcoholics. So we'll take our first steps on the pathway to a new freedom and a new happiness with the story of Samuel Hopkins Hadley. It's the story of a twice-born man who found sobriety in 1882. One Tuesday evening, I sat in a saloon in Harlem, a homeless, friendless, dying drunkard. I had pawned or sold everything that would bring me a drink. I could not sleep unless I was dead drunk. I had not eaten for four days, and for four nights I had suffered delirium tremors. From midnight to morning, I had often said, I will never be a tramp. I will never be cornered. For when that time comes, if ever it comes, I will find a home in the bottom of the river. But the Lord so ordered that when the time did come, I was not able to walk one quarter of the way to the river. As I sat there thinking, I seemed to feel some great and mighty presence. I did not know what it was then. I had learned afterwards that it was Jesus, the sinner's friend. I walked up to the bar and pounded on it with my fist till I made all the glasses rattle. I said I would never take another drink. If I died on the street, I really felt that it would happen before morning. Something said, if you really want to keep the promise, go and have yourself locked up. I went to the nearest station house. I was placed in a narrow cell and it seemed as though all of the demons that would find room came into that place with me. But that dear spirit that came to me in the saloon was present and said, pray. I did pray. And though I didn't feel any great help, I kept on praying. I was finally released and found my way to my brother's house where every care was given me. While lying in bed, the admonishing spirit never left me. And when I arose the next Sunday morning, I felt that day would decide my fate. And toward evening, it came to my head to go to Jerry McCauley's mission. I went. The house was packed. And with difficulty, I made my way to the space near the platform. There I saw the apostles, the disdrunkard, and the outcast, Jerry McCauley. He arose and amid great silence told his own experience. There was sincerity about this man that carried conviction with it. And I found myself saying, I wonder if God could save me. 
I listened to the testimony of 25 or 30 persons, every one of whom had been saved from alcohol, and I made up my mind that I would be saved or die right there. When the invitation was given, I knelt down with a crowd of drunkards. What a conflict was going on for my poor soul. A blessed whisper said, come. The devil said, be careful. I halted for a moment and then, with a breaking heart, I said, dear Jesus, can you help me? Never with mortal tongue can I describe that moment. Although up to that moment my soul had been filled with indescribable gloom, I felt the glorious brightness of the noonday sun shine in my heart. I felt I was a free man. I had a precious feeling of safety, of freedom, of resting on Jesus. I felt that Christ with all of his brightness and power had come into my life, that indeed old things had passed away and all things had become new. From that moment till now, I have never wanted a drink of whiskey. I've never seen money enough to make me take one. I promised God that night that if he would take away the appetite for drink, I would work all my life for him. He's done his part. I've been trying to do mine. So Sam Hopkins Hadley took over as superintendent of the Macaulay Rescue Mission at 316 Water Street in Manhattan in 1886. From that time until his death in 1906, he helped convert hundreds, if not thousands, of hopeless drunks. After Sam died, his son Harry would also be converted. And it was Harry, Harry Hadley, who corroborated with an Episcopalian minister named Sam Shoemaker, okay? And in 1926 became the first superintendent of the Calvary Rescue Mission on 23rd Street in Manhattan. And it was at the Calvary Rescue Mission that both Eddie and Bill would answer the call and come to the rail and experience the power of conversion. Sam Hadley's heartwarming story comes to us from the first of our benefactors who had come to believe in the power greater than human power. And the abridged version of Sam's story of redemption from alcohol can be found in the book, The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. Varieties, or V-R-E, is the edited transcript of the Gifford, Le Gifford Lectures on Natural Religion that James gave in Scotland in 1901 and 1902 to many of the world's finest academia. How many people have heard of William James? and the varieties of religious experience. Bill mentions it twice in the big book. And it was in these lectures that James suggested to his learned colleagues a radically different way of looking at and uh, relating to the power of religion and religious experience, especially its ability to completely transform human lives. So his observations and conclusions helped provide the foundation upon which today many an alcoholic has built a new spiritual structure. So what's the gist of James? Because we're going to try to bring James in and, and hear from James. The gist of James was there's two kinds of religion. There's two kinds of men on this earth, and each needs a different kind of religion, and that if they can get it, their life can be transformed, and sometimes it'll happen quickly, 
sometimes it'll happen slowly. So let's bring James in and get started with this thing. The only radical remedy I know for dipsomania is religiomania. The word dipsomania was the commonly used term to describe the malady prior to the popularization of the term alcoholism, which was first introduced by the Swiss physician Magnus Huss in 1849. The terms alcoholic and alcoholism were used infrequently until the 20th century when AA's big book and the fellowship took root. According to the American Heritage Dictionary, a dipsomaniac is a person with an irresistible craving for alcoholic drink. Someone who would drink until they passed out. Any dipsos here? <laughs> In VRE, James notes the spiritual nature of alcohol's power over mankind. James had an enlightened view Okay, contrary to the popular opinion that alcohol's attraction was pathological, and instead, he talked about its appeal to the mystic consciousness. The sway of alcohol over mankind is unquestionably due to its power to stimulate the mystical faculties of human nature, usually crushed to earth by the cold facts and dry criticisms of the sober hour. Sobriety diminishes, discriminates, and says no. Drunkenness expands, unites, and says yes. It is, in fact, the great exciter of the yes function in man. It brings its votary from the chill periphery of things to the radiant core. Not through mere perversity do men run after it. To the poor and on the unlettered, it stands in the place of symphony concerts and of literature. And it is part of the deeper mystery and tragedy of life that whiffs and gleams of something that we immediately recognize as excellent should be vouchsafed to so many of us only in the fleeting earlier phases of what in its totality is so degrading a poisoning. So not through mere perversity do men run after it. And contrary to the popular opinion of that day, and perhaps still today, that alcoholism was or is a symptom of the weak-willed, a moral failing, or an expression of mental pathology or illness, James recognized the spirituality of drunkenness. It makes him, for the moment, one with truth. When you're one with truth in the moment, you are home, let me tell you. These are powerful statements that demonstrate for certain types the spiritual nature of man's attraction to ethyl alcohol, which was appropriately named spirits. That wasn't an accident, you know, when they named alcohol spirits, okay? So we'll talk more about the spiritual nature of this when we get to our next believer, but instead let's look at for a minute this idea of a mania for religion or religiomania, as James said. It would indeed be foolish to set up an abstract definition of religion's essence and then proceed to defend that definition against all comers. But that's exactly what James will do in a minute. Um, he introduces us to the concept that there's two kinds of religion, one personal and the other institutional. At the outset, we are struck by one great partition which divides the religious field. On the one side of it lies institutional, 
on the other personal religion. By the way, what James meant as personal religion, we call spirituality today. So James offered this definition of religion, which clarified his knowledge and experience of this often misunderstood construct. Religion shall mean for us the feelings, acts, and experiences of individual men in their solitude, so far as they apprehend themselves to stand in relation to whatever they may consider the divine. If you want a definition for spirituality, there you go. From the very outset, we could see that James believed that one distinct and separate aspect of religion was something very personal, which he described as the feelings, acts, and experiences of individual men in their solitude, commonly conceptualized as spiritual or spirituality. So James realized that many of his listeners might quibble over the words and definitions, but we don't do that today in AA, right? The word religion, as ordinarily used, is equivocal. Meaning it's got two meanings. To some of you, personal religion, thus nakedly considered, will no doubt seem too incomplete a thing to wear the general name. It is a part of religion, you will say, but only its unorganized rudiment. If we are to name it by itself, we had better call it man's conscience or morality than his religion. The name religion should be reserved for the fully organized system of feeling, thought, and institution for the church, in short, of which this personal religion, so-called, is but a fractional element. But if you say this, it will only show the more plainly how much the question of definition tends to become a dispute about names. So James suggested that we could adopt any name that we want, you know, but he would still continue to call it religion. So later on, we'll see why certain groups have substituted the word spiritual for what James described as personal religion. Rather than prolong such a dispute, I am willing to accept almost any name for the personal religion of which I propose to treat. Call it conscience or morality if you yourselves prefer, and not religion. Under either name, it will be equally worthy of our study. As for myself, I think it will prove to contain some elements which morality pure and simple does not contain, and these elements I shall soon seek to point out. So I will myself continue to apply the word religion to it. So James believed it was vitally important to distinguish between the two, and his conclusions represented a radical departure, no doubt heretical to some, from the conceptualizations of the masses then as well as today, some 100 years after his first attempt to enlighten us. In critically judging the value of religious phenomena, it is very important to insist on the distinction between religion as an individual personal function and religion as an institutional, corporate, or tribal product. So in the religion as an institutional, corporate, or tribal product, we find the many the masses, right, the ordinary participants. James didn't really want to look at that, okay? He believed it was going to be in this personal experience that we would really find the power. So he talked about those who possess religion at second hand. It took me a long time to realize one of the reasons I didn't do well as a child with the religion they were trying to give me, they were giving it to me second hand. That's like handing me, that's like me watching Bob drink and say, is it good? No, I don't know. 
Your ordinary religious believer who follows the conventional observances of his country, whether it be Buddhist, Christian, or Mohammedan, his religion has been made for him by others, communicated to him by tradition, determined to fixed forms by imitation, and retained by habit. So James believed it was personal religion, direct and first-hand, experiential, that would that where we could find the transforming experiences that would move mountains and recreate lives. In the more personal branch of religion, it is on the contrary, the inner dispositions of man himself which form the center of interest. His conscience, his deserts, his helplessness, his incompleteness. And although the favor of the God, as forfeited or gained, is still an essential feature of the story, and theology plays a vital part therein, yet the acts to which this sort of religion prompts are personal, not ritual acts. The individual transacts the business by himself alone, and the ecclesiastical organization, with its priests and sacraments and other go-betweens, sinks to an altogether secondary place. The relation goes direct from heart to heart, from soul to soul, between man and his maker. In one sense, at least, the personal religion will prove itself more fundamental than either theology or ecclesiasticism. Heart to heart, soul to soul. So it would appear that we and God have business together, that religion and religious experience will prove to be an affair of the heart not merely a philosophy, theology, morality, or matter of the knowing intellect. At the core of all religiousness is personal religion. And when religious thoughts and actions move from the mind to the heart, they can begin to burn with a fever, and real work will be accomplished as the spiritual energy flows through our very core. And this is what James talked about as religiomania. Okay. Many of James's unconventional ideas proved to be the foundation of both the Oxford group and AA's understanding of spirituality and our way of life. James certainly understood the powerless and unmanageable condition most real alcoholics come to know. In discussing the difference between personal religion, William James characterized as direct and experiential and the institutional form passed on at secondhand we come to see that one size doesn't fit all, okay? And that power can be derived from direct experience. James went on to say there's two types of families on this earth. The first type is the once born, and they have the religion of what he called healthy-mindedness. They live at ease with life in harmony with the great reality. The first underlying cause of all sickness, weakness, or depression is the human sense of separateness from that divine energy which we call God. The soul which can feel and affirm in serene but jubilant confidence, as did the Nazarene, I and my Father are one, has no further need of healer or of healing. This is the whole truth in a nutshell, and other foundation for wholeness can no man lay than this fact of impregnable divine union. Disease can no longer attack one whose feet are planted on this rock, who feels hourly, momently, the influx of the deific breath. Remember, Bill Wilson had just sobered up, and he's reading this book in the town's hospital, and it's opening his mind. 
The views of the healthy-minded or the mind-cure sect, as William James called them, are best exemplified in the writings of Ralph Waldo Trine. I'm going to show you a couple of slides that come from Trine's In Tune with the Infinite. The great central fact of the universe is that spirit of infinite life and power that is back of all, that manifests itself in and through all, the spirit of infinite life and power that is back of all is what I call God. I care not what term you may use, be it kindly light, providence, the oversold, omnipotent, or whatever term may be most convenient, so long as we are in agreed in regard to the great central fact itself. Great central fact, does that sound familiar? In just the degree that we come into a conscious realization of our oneness with the infinite life and open ourselves to this divine inflow, do we actualize in ourselves the qualities and powers of the infinite life? Do we make ourselves channels through which the infinite intelligence and power can work? In just the degree in which you realize your oneness with the infinite spirit, you will engage disease for ease, in harmony for harmony, suffering and pain for abounding health and strength. To recognize our own divinity and our intimate relation to the universal is to attach the belts of our machinery to the powerhouse of the universe. One need remain in hell no longer than one chooses to. We can rise to any heaven we ourselves choose, and when we choose so to rise, all the higher powers of the universe combine to help us heavenward. When Henry Ford first read this book, he bought copies of it and gave it to all his friends. He said it was the most important book that he'd ever read. James believed that the systematic cultivation of healthy-mindedness as a religious attitude is a part of human nature and something we all do to one extent or another. Now, standing in opposition to the healthy-minded, we have the sick soul, who James declared must be twice born in order to be happy. They are at dis-ease with life. James certainly described the alcoholic when he talked of the individual he characterized as the sick soul. The overwhelming majority of these types who suffer from a spiritual malady can attest to a feeling of incompleteness or wrongness, a sense of self divided, consciously wrong, inferior, and unhappy the need to escape it at any cost. But there are others for whom evil is no mere relation of the subject to particular outer things, but something more radical in general, a wrongness or vice in his essential nature, which no alteration of the environment or any superficial rearrangement of the inner self can cure and which requires a supernatural remedy. So now the text Alcoholics Anonymous echoed James with its description of the unmanaged life, which can be found in the chapter, We Agnostics. We are having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be a real help to other people. I think those are the bedevilments from the big book, and I like to call that, that's the symptom of the unmanaged, the unmanageable life. 
So in comparing the healthy-minded and the sick-souled, James noted that the sort of religion that each might require would quite naturally be completely different. The shoe that fits one often pinches another. Okay, one man's meat is another man's poison. For certain sufferers living in the lowest spheres, desperation can often lead to a path they might normally not normally choose, might lead to a solution. The sanguine and healthy-minded live habitually on the sunny side of their misery line. The depressed and melancholy live beyond it, in darkness and apprehension. There are men who seem to have started in life with a bottle or two of champagne inscribed to their credit, whilst others seem to have been born close to the pain threshold, which the slightest irritants fatally send them over. Does it not appear as if one who lived more habitually on one side of the pain threshold might need a different sort of religion from one who habitually lived on the other? This question of the relativity of different types of religion to different types of need arises naturally at this point. So James uses the story of Leo Tolstoy, and he reveals Tolstoy's innermost understanding of the nature of his spiritual malady. This same conviction would later be echoed by another AA benefactor who had come to believe, and this guy was named Carl Jung. During the whole course of this year, when I almost unceasingly kept asking myself how to end the business, whether by the rope or by the bullet, during all that time, alongside all those movements of my ideas and observations, my heart kept languishing with another pining emotion. I can call this by no other name than that of the thirst for God. This craving for God had nothing to do with the movement of my ideas. In fact, it was the direct contrary of that movement, but it came from my heart. It was like a feeling of dread that made me seem like an orphan and isolated in the midst of all these things that were so foreign. And this feeling of dread was so mitigated by the hope of finding the assistance of someone. When any human has sunk to the depths of hopelessness, when life has lost all its flavor, and the sun no longer shines, a man must be born again in order to truly see the kingdom. Of the process, intellectual as well as emotional, which starting from this idea of God led to Tolstoy's recovery, the only thing that need interest us is the phenomenon of his absolute disenchantment with ordinary life. The process is one of redemption, not a mere reversion to natural health, and the sufferer, when saved, is saved by what seems to him a second birth, a deeper kind of conscious being than he could enjoy before. So James understood the difference between the once born and the twice born and the need for a different kind of religion for each. Hopelessness and deflation at depth would be the prerequisites for redemption. The way to heaven for the twice born must necessarily pass through hell. In the religion of the once born, the world is a sort of rectilinear or one-storied affair whose accounts are kept in one denomination, whose parts have just the values which naturally they appear to have, and of which a simple algebraic sum of pluses and minuses will give the total worth. Happiness and religious peace consist in living on the plus side of the account. 
In the religion of the twice-born, on the other hand, the world is a double-storied mystery. Peace cannot be reached by the simple addition of pluses and elimination of minuses from life. Natural good is not simply insufficient in amount and transient. There lurks a falsity in its very being. Cancelled as it all is by death, if not by earlier enemies, it gives no final balance and can never be the thing intended for our lasting worship. It keeps us from our real good, rather, and renunciation and despair of it are our first step in the direction of the truth. There are two lives, the natural and the spiritual, and we must lose the one before we can participate in the other. That's pretty deep stuff for William James, let me tell you. So the first step in the direction of truth, according to James, was the recognition of and the renunciation of the wrongness, the dis-ease, the spiritual malady. The process would later be described as deflation at depth. Today we often echo that as sick and tired, of being sick and tired. The sick soul must hit a bottom before reorganization on a higher spiritual plane is possible. We must lose the natural or material basis for living before we can begin a new spiritually centered life. For so many of us, it has to be beat out of us too. All right? And the process by which it occurs may be sudden or it might be gradual. And religion is but one of the paths that can provide that rebirth. So James said there was two ways that inner unification could occur. The sudden spectacular type he called self-surrender, and the gradual was described as volitional. In the VRE lectures, James was much more interested in the less frequent self-surrender type, which could burst forth with explosive results. The older medicine used to speak of two ways, lysis and crisis, one gradual, the other abrupt, in which one might recover from a bodily disease. In the spiritual realm, there are also two ways, one gradual, the other sudden, in which inner unification may occur. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. So this word conversion that dates from the 14th century comes from the Latin combatati. And there's a detailed explanation of its theological meaning, but we won't get into this. But James had this to say about the process and its importance. To be converted, to be regenerated, to receive grace, to experience religion, to gain an assurance are so many phrases which denote the process, gradual or sudden, by which a self hitherto divided and consciously wrong, inferior and unhappy, becomes unified and consciously right, superior and happy in consequence of its firmer hold upon religious realities. This at least is what conversion signifies in general terms, whether or not we believe that a direct divine operation is needed to bring such a moral change about. To say that a man is converted means, in these terms, that religious ideas, previously peripheral in his consciousness, now take a central place, and that religious aims form the habitual center of his energy. All we know is that there are dead feelings, dead ideas, and cold beliefs and there are hot and live ones. And when one grows hot and alive within us, everything has to recrystallize about it. If the change be a religious one, we call it a conversion, especially if it be by crisis or sudden. So when religious or spiritual aims form the habitual center of a man's energy, 
you inevitably have the makings of what James called religiomania. The only radical remedy for dipsomania. And as we said before, there's two ways it can come about. There is thus a conscious and voluntary way and an involuntary and unconscious way in which mental results may get accomplished. And we find both ways exemplified in the history of conversion, giving us two types of which Starbuck calls the volitional type and the type by self-surrender, respectively. In the volitional type, the regenerative change is usually gradual and consists in the building up, piece by piece, of a new set of moral and spiritual habits. So James gives the first example of the volitional type of conversion occurring gradually over a period of time as the result of building up a new spiritual structure piece by piece or walking down a particular path step by step. Later we'll find it described as the educational variety. But even in this educational path, we find ourselves at a turning point where certain requirements must be met for the power to begin to flow. Even in the most voluntarily built up sort of regeneration, there are passages of partial self-surrender interposed. And in the great majority of all cases, when the will had done its uttermost toward bringing one close to the complete unification aspired after, it seems that the very last step must be left to other forces and performed without the help of its activity. In other words, self-surrender becomes then indispensable. The personal will, says Dr. Starbuck, must be given up. In many cases, relief persistently refuses to come until the person ceases to resist or to make an effort in the direction he desires to go. So surrender must occur. Deflation at depth due to the helpless and hopeless situation, followed by letting go absolutely. No matter how hard we try to exert the personal will or try to think our way out of the depths of despair, relief stubbornly refuses to come. So many pledges have been made, sweet promises broken. Sincere and honest attempts to change by men who at one time enjoyed every success, but now they're bound and chained, unable to move from the state of dis-ease to one of life with ease. Every new action is doomed to failure when attempted by the personal will. New management is required. Oh God, manage me, because I cannot manage myself. But there comes a moment in the life of a man, a moment of decision when he must be fearless and thorough. Half measures avail nothing. The man must throw himself unto the care and protection of the powers that be with complete abandon. The moment of surrender is the turning point. In any terms, the crisis described is the throwing of our conscious selves upon the mercy of powers which, whatever they may be, are more ideal than we are actually and make for our redemption. You see why self-surrender has been and always must be regarded as the vital turning point of the religious life, so far as the religious life is spiritual and no affair of outer works and ritual and sacraments. So we can admit defeat and surrender. It's not necessary to know what, to what we can act as if. The final forces lay with forces, the final work lays with forces greater than ourselves. We can act as if there were a God, feel as if we were free, consider nature as if she were full of special designs, 
lay plans as if we were to be immortal. And we find then that these words do make a genuine difference in our moral life. Act as if. William James. So one example of self-surrender given by James was the story of Sam Hadley that we heard at the beginning of, of this presentation. His rebirth was profound and sudden, occurring after complete and utter defeat. His personal center of energy was so altered and rearranged that Sam spent the rest of his life trying to save others who were suffering as he once did. The truest mark of a spiritual awakening is the inability to keep it to oneself. Okay? There are many examples recorded in the history of spectacular transformations. To illustrate another more familiar story of self-surrender, we read of the conversion of a habitual drunkard who had lost the power to choose whether he would drink or not. He had made his surrender at the rail of a rescue mission and shortly after returned to a well-known hospital for his fourth treatment. While there, he experienced the requisite deflation of depth and cried out in a moment of desperation for God to show himself that he was ready to do anything it would take, anything. And his response from God was immediate. Suddenly the room lit up with a great white light. I was caught up into an ecstasy which there are no words to describe. It seemed to me in the mind's eye that I was on a mountain and then a wind, not of air, but of spirit, was blown. And then it burst upon me that I was a free man. Slowly the ecstasy subsided. I lay on the bed, but now for a time I was in another world, a new world of consciousness. All about me and through me there was a wonderful feeling of presence. And I thought to myself, so this is the God of the preachers. A great peace stole over me, and I thought, no matter how wrong things seem to be, they're still all right. Things are all right with God and in his world. So the story of Bill Wilson's conversion would surely been worthy of a place in William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience had it occurred prior to 1902. Shortly after his experience at Towns, Bill was given a copy of The Varieties of Religious Experience and he began to understand the power both behind his transforming experience. More light on this came the next day. It was Evie, I think, who brought me a copy of William James' Varieties of Religious Experience. It was rather difficult reading for me, but I devoured it from cover to cover. Spiritual experiences, James thought, could have objective reality, almost like gifts from the blue. They could transform people. Some were sudden, brilliant illuminations. Others came on very gradually. Some flowed out of religious channels. Others did not. But nearly all had the great common denominator of pain, suffering, calamity. Complete hopelessness and deflation at depth were almost always required to make the recipient ready. The significance of all of this burst upon me. Deflation at depth. Yes, that was it. Exactly that had happened to me. Dr. Carl Jung had told an Oxford group friend of Abby's how hopeless his alcoholism was, and Dr. Silkworth had passed the same sentence on to me. So there can be no doubt as to the weight and depth William James's psychology had on the development of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Bill Wilson would repeatedly give credit to James as co-founder in his numerous speeches and written papers, many of which have been recorded in AA publications. So in closing my discussion of James and the foundation stone his research laid down for AA, we'll note this final insight from James, but I'll leave it to you to determine its meaning. What is attained is often an altogether new level of spiritual vitality, a relatively heroic level, in which impossible things have become possible, and new energies and endurances are shown. The personality is changed, the man is born anew, sanctification is the technical name of this result. The effect of conversion is to bring with it a changed attitude towards life which is fairly constant and permanent, although the feelings fluctuate. In other words, the persons who have passed through conversion, having once taken a stand for the religious life, tend to feel themselves identified with it, no matter how much their religious enthusiasm declines. As a matter of fact, all the more striking instances of conversion, all those, for instance, which I have quoted, have been permanent. So there's James, and the only cure for dipsomania is religiomania. About the time William James was giving his groundbreaking lectures, our next benefactor who would come to believe was only 27 years old and a recent graduate of the University of Basel with a medical degree. In 1900, he began his career at a psychiatric, psychiatric hospital in Zurich. His dissertation, published in 1903, revealed what would become his lifelong passion, the quest for insight into psychology, dreams, religious phenomenon, and the soul of the modern man. The paper was titled on the psychology and pathology of so-called occult phenomena. Carl Gustav Jung was the founder of analytical psychology and is often considered to be the first modern psychologist to believe that the human psyche is by nature religious. Carl Jung would have a direct impact on the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous through his dealings with a New England industrialist named Roland Hazard. Now the legendary story of this American businessman is found in the second chapter of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. The account that I'm gonna provide below may better help to illustrate Jung's direct and immediate influence upon others who would come to believe. Few people know that the first taproot of AA hit pay dirt some 30 years ago in a physician's office. Dr. Carl Jung, that great pioneer in psychiatry, was talking to an alcoholic patient. This, in effect, is what happened. The patient, a prominent American businessman, had gone the typical alcoholic route. He had exhausted the possibilities of medicine and psychiatry in the United States and had then come to Dr. Jung as to a court of last resort. Jung had treated him for a year, and the patient, whom we shall call Mr. R, felt confident that the hidden springs underneath his compulsion to drink had been discovered and removed. Nevertheless, he found himself intoxicated within a short time after leaving Dr. Jung's care. Now he was back in a state of black despair. He asked Jung what the score was, and he got it. 
In substance, Dr. Jung said, for some time after you came here, I continued to believe that you might be one of those rare cases who could make a recovery. But I must now frankly tell you that I have never seen a single case recover through psychiatric art where the neurosis is so severe as yours. Medicine has done all that it can for you, and that's where you stand. Mr. R's depression deepened. He asked, is there no exception? Is this really the end of the line for me? Well, replied the doctor, there are some exceptions, a very few. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding forces of these men are suddenly cast to one side, and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. In fact, I have been trying to produce some such emotional re rearrangement with you. With many types of neurotics, the methods which I employ are successful, but I have never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. But, protested the patient, I'm a religious man, and I still have faith. To this, Dr. Young replied, ordinary religious faith isn't enough. What I'm talking about is a transforming experience, a conversion experience, if you like. I can only recommend that you place yourself in the religious atmosphere of your own choice, that you recognize your personal hopelessness, and that you cast yourself upon whatever God you think there is. The lightning of the transforming experience of conversion may then strike you. This you must try. It is your only way out. So spoke a great and humble physician. For the AA to B, this was a tense strike. Science had pronounced Mr. R virtually hopeless. Dr. Jung's words had struck him at great depth, producing an immense deflation of his ego. Deflation at death is today a cornerstone principle of AA. There in Dr. Jung's office, it was first employed in our behalf. The patient, Mr. R, chose the Oxford group of that day as his religious association and atmosphere. Terribly chastened and almost hopeless, he began to be active with it. To his intense joy and astonishment, the obsession to drink presently left him. Returning to America, Roland came upon an old school friend of mine, a chronic alcoholic. This friend, whom we shall call Ebby, was about to be committed to a state mental hospital. At this juncture, another vital ingredient was added to the AA synthesis. Mr. R, the alcoholic, began talking to Ebby also an alcoholic and a kindred sufferer. This made for identification at depth with a second cardinal AA principle. Over this bridge of identification, Mr. R passed Jung's verdict of how hopeless medically and psychiatrically most alcoholics were. He then introduced Abby to the Oxford group, where my friend promptly sobered up. So Carl Jung was quite familiar with and echoed the work of William James, and he too believed in the power of religion to cure the incurable. It was Carl Jung following up on the foundation that William James and a kindly doctor who loved drunks would lay in the mind of Bill Wilson that would form the basis of the three pertinent ideas. We like to call them the ABCs, and it's the foundation of the original 12-step program. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism and that God could and would 
if he was sought. It was Young's verdict of hopelessness upon Roland and his, and his inability to treat it by any medical or psychological means that made clear that second pertinent idea. His instructions to Roland that he place himself in an atmosphere that might be conducive to bringing about the necessary emotional rearrangement forms the third pertinent idea. Roland found the solution to his alcoholism by following a life-changing spiritual program and by being of service in the Oxford group. Roland's story of deflation and depth and his finding the spiritual solution to his encounter with Dr. Young proved to be the first seed in our garden. And we could see from Young's various writings that follow the crux of his message that religion and religiousness is the true basis of the human psyche. In speaking of religion, I must make it clear from the start what I mean by that term. Religion, as the Latin word denotes, is a careful and scrupulous observation of what Rudolf Otto aptly termed the numinosum, that is, a dynamic existence or effect not caused by an arbitrary act of will. On the contrary, it seizes and controls the human subject, which is always rather its victim than creator. Religion appears to me to be a peculiar attitude of the human mind, which could be formulated in accordance with the original use of the term religio. That is, a careful consideration and observation of certain dynamic factors understood to be powers, spirits, demons, gods, laws, ideas, ideals of whatever name man had given to such factors as he has found in his world parable, dangerous or helpful enough to be taken into careful consideration, or grand, beautiful, and meaningful enough to be devoutly adored and loved. In colloquial language, one often says of somebody who is enthusiastically interested in a certain pursuit, that he is almost religiously devoted to his cause. William James, for instance, remarks that a scientist often has no creed, but his temper is devout. I think Carl Jung was a big fan of William James, actually. I want to make it clear that by the term religion, I do not mean a creed. It is, however, true that on one hand, every confession is originally based on the experience of the numinosum, and on the other hand, upon the loyalty trust and confidence toward a definitely experienced numinous effect and the subsequent alteration of consciousness. The conversion of Paul is a striking example of this. Religion, it might be said, is the term that designates the attitude peculiar to a consciousness which has been altered by the experience of the numinosum. Creeds are codified and dogmatized forms of original religious experience. The contents of the experience have become sanctified and usually congealed in a rigid, often elaborate, structure. The practice and reproduction of the original experience have become a ritual and unchangeable institution. This does not necessarily mean a life is petrifaction. On the contrary, it can become the form of a religious experience for ages of time, for millions of people without there being any vital necessity for alteration. So like James, Jung seems to know all too well about medical materialism, the common and mistaken verdict that emotional problems must be rooted in physiology. 
Our usual materialistic conception of the psyche is, I am afraid, not particularly helpful in neurotic cases. If only the soul were endowed with a subtle body, then one could say at least that this breath or smoke body was suffering from a real, though somewhat airy cancer, in much the same way as the gross material body could be subject to a similar ailment. There would be at least be something real. Medicine, therefore, feels a strong dislike toward anything of a psychical nature. Either the body is ill or there is nothing the matter. And if you cannot prove that the body is really diseased, that is because our present means do not enable the physician to find the true nature of the undoubtedly organic trouble. But the human soul seems to harbor mysteries, since an empiricist, all religious experience boils down to a particular condition of the mind. If we want to know anything of what religious experience means to those who have it, we have every chance nowadays of studying every imaginable form of it. And if it means anything, it means everything to those who have it. So once again, we return to the inescapable idea that there's a spiritual basis for alcoholism. And we'll see in the following the foundation for an idea from Jung that would not be fully articulated until many years later. And that idea is spiritus contra spiritum. Religion is a relationship to the highest or strongest value, be it positive or negative. The relationship is voluntary as well as involuntary. That is, you can accept consciously the value by which you are possessed unconsciously. That psychological fact, which is the greatest power in your system, is the God, since it is always the overwhelming psychic factor which is called God. As soon as God ceases to be an overwhelming factor, he becomes a mere name. His essence is dead, and his power is gone. And that's when vodka became my higher power. There are some people whose attitude is essentially spiritual and others whose attitude is essentially materialistic. It must not be assumed that such an attitude is accidentally acquired or springs from some misunderstanding. These attitudes show themselves as ingrained passions which no criticism or persuasion can stamp out. There are even cases where an outspoken materialism has its source in the denial of a religious disposition. The human psyche is highly equivocal. In every single case, we must consider the question whether an attitude or so-called habitus exists in its own right or is perhaps only a compensation for the opposite. Is a habit a habit or am I running from something else and that's where it's manifesting? However far-fetched it may sound, experience shows that many neuroses are caused by the fact that people blind themselves to their own religious promptings because of a childish passion for rational enlightenment. The psychologists today ought to realize once and for all that we are no longer dealing with questions of dogma and creed. A religious attitude is an element in the psychic life whose importance can hardly be overrated. And it is precisely for the religious outlook that the sense of historical continuity is indispensable.
Lastly, Young agrees with and reiterates James' position that self-surrender has always been and must be regarded as the vital turning point in the religious life. If you sum up what people tell you about their experience, you can formulate it about it in this way. They came to themselves, they could accept themselves, they were able to become reconciled to themselves, and by this, they were also reconciled to adverse circumstances and events. This is much like what was formerly expressed by the saying, he has made his peace with God, he has sacrificed his own will, he has submitted himself to the will of God. There is nothing that can free us from this bond except that opposite urge of life, the spirit. It is not the children of the flesh, but the children of God who know freedom. Can a man be born again? For thousands of years, rites of initiation have been teaching spiritual rebirth. Yet strangely enough, man forgets again and again the meaning of divine procreation. There is surely no evidence of a strong life of the spirit, and yet the penalty of misunderstanding is heavy, for it is nothing less than neurotic decay, embitterment, atrophy, and sterility. It is easy enough to derive the spirit out the door, but when we have done so, the salt of life grows flat. It loses its savor. Fortunately, we have proof that the spirit always renews its strength in the fact that the central teaching of the ancient initiations is handed on from generation to generation. Ever and again, human beings arise who understand what is meant by the fact that God is our Father. No matter what the world thinks of religious experience, the one who has it possesses the great treasures of a thing that has provided him with a source of life, meaning, and beauty, and that has given a new splendor to the world and to mankind. He has pistis and peace. Where is the criterion by which you could say that such a life is not legitimate, that such experience is not valid, and that such pistis is mere illusion? The thing that cures a neurosis must be as convincing as the neurosis, and since the latter is only too real, the helpful experience must be of equal reality. The only cure for dipsomania is religiomania. January of 1961, Bill Wilson wrote Carl Jung to acknowledge and thank him for his great contribution to Alcoholics Anonymous through his treatment of Roland Hazard. That letter, as well as Young's response, is documented in the book, The Language of the Heart. A week later, Carl Young wrote back to Bill. He verified what Bill always knew to be true, that when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. Young began by thanking Bill for his letter and then provided him with this deep insight on his dealings with that certain American businessman. He truthfully explained the basis for Roland's alcoholism. His craving for alcohol was the equivalent, on a low level, of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness, expressed in medieval language, the union with God. The only right and legitimate way to such an experience is that it happens to you in reality, and it can only happen to you when you walk on a path which leads you to a higher understanding. You might be led to that goal 
by an act of grace, or through a personal and honest contact with friends, or through a higher education of the mind beyond the confines of mere rationalism. I see from your letter that Roland H. has chosen the second way, which was, under the circumstances, obviously the best one. I am strongly convinced that the evil principle prevailing in this world leads the unrecognized spiritual need into perdition if it is not counteracted either by real religious insight or by protective wall of human community. An ordinary man, not protected by an action from above and isolated in society, cannot resist the power of evil, which is called very aptly the devil. But the use of such words arouses so many mistakes that one can only keep aloof from them as much as possible. These are the reasons why I could not give a full and sufficient explanation to Roland Hazard, but I am risking it with you because I conclude from your very decent and honest letter that you have acquired a point of view above the misleading platitudes one usually hears about alcoholism. You see, alcohol in Latin is spiritus, and you use the same word for the highest religious experience as well as the most depraving poison. The helpful formula, therefore, is spiritus contra spiritum. Takes the power of God to overcome the power of alcohol. Carl Jung had humbly come to believe that it takes the power of God to overcome the power of alcohol, that no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, and that God can and will. In the book 12 Steps and 12 Traditions on page 42, one finds this thought-provoking comment. Nearly every serious emotional problem can be seen as a case of misdirected instinct. Jung had said that man will never know for sure the basis for the instinctual drives that Bill Wilson said were perfectly necessary and God-given. But he did know that nearly every serious emotional disturbance in the mature modern man had a primary cause that was spiritual. Among all my patients in the second half of life, that is to say over 35, there has not been a single one whose problem is in the last resort was not that of finding a religious outlook on life. It is safe to say that every one of them fell ill because he had lost that which the living religions of every age have given their followers, and none of them has been really healed who did not regain his religious outlook. So when the spiritual malady is overcome, we enter upon a new relationship with our creator. We then have all the elements of a way of living which can answer all our problems. Belief in the power of God plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things are the essential requirements. Thanks for letting me share.